Hi, I'm Dan Permack, and welcome to Axios Recap, brought to you by Comcast. Today's Thursday, March 11th, and we're looking back at this same week last year, the week that America changed. This is our COVID-19 Decision Maker series, conversations about some of the most consequential decisions made this week last year. Today, we speak with Dr. Stephen Corwin, CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, about how his system had to pivot for the pandemic. On March 1st, New York Presbyterian checked in its first COVID patient, a lawyer from the northern suburb of New Rochelle, where a cluster of cases had prompted a response from the National Guard. Dr. Corwin joins us to discuss the decisions he made that week in staffing, in canceling elective surgeries, in distributing PPE. All the while, he was watching Italy, deeply concerned about where the U.S. was headed. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Dr. Stephen Corwin. So, Dr. Corwin, when did you first realize COVID was spreading in the community and had reached New York City? On March 1st, we admitted to our Lawrence Hospital facility in Bronxville a very sick patient, a 52-year-old lawyer from New Rochelle, and he had been in the hospital for a couple of days before then. He had not met the criteria for testing for COVID. He had no travel history. And recall at the time, the testing was very limited. The testing was being done by the CDC. But there were suspicions, given the appearance of his x-ray, that he had COVID. And indeed, he had COVID and was transferred to our Columbia facility to be put in the ICU and put on a ventilator. At that point, we recognized there was community spread. And that was a sort of horrifying moment because then you realize that this this virus is widespread. He had no travel history. We have inadequate testing facilities. And we were going to really start to mimic the modeling that we had done on both the Wuhan epidemic and then what had happened in Milan, in the Lombardy region of Italy. And that curve was a frightening curve. The problem, of course, was that with community spread, you can't isolate a specific community. And so then you start to have the reality hit you. Oh, boy, this is really going to be a big lockdown and we're going to be in loads of trouble. We had started to accumulate uh, protective equipment in the early January timeframe, but we couldn't accumulate enough. And when we had done our emergency preparedness drills, we anticipated that with some sort of virus like this, we would use four to five times the amount of protective equipment that we normally use. So on a normal day, masks all in, we use about 4,000 masks. At the peak of the crisis, we were using 100,000 masks a day, 25 times. I wouldn't say I was panicked, but I was, um, the sober realization that this was going to be a rough haul was, was clearly there in early March. The first goal was to say, okay, let's try to handle the COVID and handle everything else. Then you start to look at the modeling and you say, we're not going to be able to handle everything else. The biggest picture in in my mind that I remember is when Dr. Faris, our chief operating officer, came to me and she said, Steve, I'm looking at the numbers. We're going to have to cancel surgeries now, now. And it was on a Wednesday of that week and we canceled them. And we told everybody this was going to be a COVID hospital. 
Our hospital system has 3,500 medical surgical beds. On March 8th, a year ago, we had four COVID patients in our hospitals combined. By March 15th, it was 66. By March 22nd, it was 600. By March 29th, it was 1,600. And at the peak, we had 2,600 patients in the hospital with COVID and 900 patients in our ICUs. Tragedies are tragedies. HIV was an absolute cataclysm, but this, this was something that we had not, this was a tsunami. That, that, that's the best way I could describe it. This was clearly going to be all hands on deck. That meant that every surgeon needed to be called. Patients needed to be called. We needed to change the way that we looked at the operating room. So as you can imagine, every one of these uh, steps has to be taken. Then we had to basically make a decision. How many operating rooms would we operate for just emergencies? Because the people were still going to have emergencies. Each one of these decisions was painstaking in terms of the level of detail you have to get to to make sure you get it right. If you didn't have enough ER capacity or ICU capacity, it didn't matter what else you did. So the first thing we had to do is to say, we've got to create more ICU capacity because we could see that we were not going to have enough. So we have about 450 ICU beds. We made a decision that we were going to double those ICU beds to 900. So how do you do that? You take operating rooms, you create ICUs. You take recovery areas, you create ICUs. You take a regular unit and you make it an ICU. That's a two to three week lag in terms of getting them constructed because you have to create negative pressure and so on. So one of the decisions we made very early on was this was gonna be an ICU crisis. The corollary decision was we need more staff. So we redeployed 2,000 doctors, 1,000 nurses. We took them out of areas where we were not seeing patients and we said, this is what you have to do and everybody pitched in. Our chairman of orthopedic surgery at Columbia was working in the emergency room. Our chairman of urology was working in the emergency room. And you know, you can't, you can't help but be awed by that. Then the third decision, which was the big decision in terms of staffing was, not everybody is comfortable taking care of an ICU patient. So how do you develop a staffing model where we can maximize the care that we're delivering these patients? And so we came up with what I would call a pyramid scheme of staffing where we took our most capable intensivists, intensive care nurses, respiratory therapists, doctors, and then we layered staffing underneath them so that we wouldn't be in a situation where we're having ICUs being run by people who didn't know how to run an ICU. So that was stretching people substantially, and it was a completely different way of caring for people. In terms of protective equipment, we were going to minimize the number of times you had to change. We would connect patients from their room to tubing outside of the room so that you wouldn't have to constantly go in and out of the room. We made a decision with our chaplaincy once we said that we couldn't have visitors, that visitation was going to be by Zoom. And unfortunately, that if somebody was succumbing, that you had to say goodbye to your loved one on FaceTime. That was the worst. There was nothing worse emotionally than that. I recall when my own father died at the age of 86 in an ICU. He had had a complicated heart surgery. I was there with my brother and sister when he passed away. I had my hand on his shoulder when he left this world. I just can't even imagine the pain of saying goodbye to a loved one remotely 
and that was that was really the that was the worst. That was a low point. It was probably sometime in March when we basically said no visitors, and this is the way we're going to have to do death and dying. These are not easy decisions. It was quiet. It was eerily quiet. It was quiet because there were no visitors. The only sounds you heard were, you know, ventilators going off and, and monitors beeping. It looked different because everyone was garbed up. Everyone was masked up. And when they took their N95 mask off, they used to, it looks like cat whiskers. That's the way you can describe it. Because you get the imprint right around your, right around your cheekbones because the mask has to fit tightly. So we did, we just looked a whole lot different. And the solemnity of it was profound. We had people from our finance department that volunteered to go to the morgue. I mean, imagine being somebody who's who's got a finance degree or an accounting degree. Now you're spending time in the morgue because people are dying. 20% of the patients who came into the hospital, the mortality was 20%. Our most complicated cardiac surgery does not have that kind of mortality. So people were seeing death on a scale that they had not seen death before in a hospital because, you know, this was just, it was funereal. Who were you coordinating with at this point? We started having meetings middle of March, probably the, around the, the 15th or so. Uh, we made decisions that we would get on the phone every day. Uh, ourselves, Montefiore, Northwell, Mount Sinai, and NYU, and we would coordinate our efforts. But it was really being coordinated by the governor, his staff, the Department of Health. We were calling contacts in the White House. Could they get us more protective equipment? There was the famous line of ex-President Trump, you know, they couldn't believe that we were using that amount of protective equipment. And there was a line where he's saying it must be, it must be falling out off the back of trucks, uh, which was, you know, irritating and, and problematic in the extreme when you have people who are, you know, using, you know, the masks and trying to save people. I was on the call with the CEOs of Cardinal and Halyard, two of our suppliers. Can you redirect supplies to us? Can you redirect PPE to us? One of our chief operating officers was the Lorene Hill. Um, I spent time with her on the phone talking about how we were going to convert anesthesia machines that you use in the operating room to ventilate somebody into ventilators that we were going to use. A ventilator that's made for an ICU is like an eight-cylinder car. A ventilator made from an anesthesia machine is like a four-cylinder car. So now you got to figure out, okay, who are, you, who are you going to put on the four-cylinder car and who are you going to put on the eight-cylinder car based on what their need was? Then on with the facilities people. How quickly can we construct it? How many beds do you now have? Cre have you now created? What was your typical day like at that point? So every day you'd get up in the morning and say, what do the numbers look like? And every afternoon you'd say, what do the numbers look like? And then every afternoon you'd say, who's in trouble? How many patients do we have to transfer from one of our facilities to another of our facilities? It was intense. I can only describe it to you. It's almost like, you know, watching a baseball game or, or looking at a, a sports contest online where you're, where you're looking at what the score is and you constantly look at what the score is. We were looking every day at the numbers and saying, when was this going to peak? Because at the peak of it, um, April 15th, I remember that distinctly, we were just about out of capacity. 
How do you now think about the impact of that week and your decisions at the time? It impacted every employee. We have 47,000 employees. Uh, it impacted every life that we saved and it impacted every life that we lost. It was, you know, it's a big burden. We did a lot of interviews with staff. And one of the most poignant interviews that I, that I did was one of our nursing staff in one of our ICUs who said, I remember every patient underneath me that's died and I still think about them and I dream about them. This has profoundly affected everybody. We had one of our lead emergency room directors get COVID, become profoundly depressed, was hospitalized psychiatrically in Virginia, was sent home, and then she committed suicide. Those stories never leave you. We all carry them with us. Dr. Corwin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it, Dan. We'll be back in 15 seconds. Welcome back. As we reflect on how this week in March changed our lives, we want to look at this date last year because a lot of people now say it was the day they realized the shit had really hit the fan. March 11th, 2020. It was a Wednesday. The night before, President Trump had told the American people this. We're prepared and we're doing a great job with it and it will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. We want to protect our ship. But that day, there were over 1,200 known cases in the U.S. and over 118,000 cases across the globe. It's also the same day the WHO declared coronavirus a global pandemic and the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 20% below its recent high from just the month before. By the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. The Dow is about to close in just moments. It's tumbling down again today, more than a thousand points. Trump? Well, he declared he was suspending travel from Europe. And then that evening, the NBA shut down. Late Wednesday, the NBA suspended the rest of its season. Here's Adam Silver from yesterday's Axios recap episode. We've been thinking at the league office about this virus from late January on, we needed to suspend the season. Later that night, perhaps the most high-profile coronavirus patients yet, Tom Hanks announcing overnight that he and wife Rita Wilson are both infected. USA Today Sports in a short video put the experience this way. Sometimes our escapisms can't actually escape reality. Tomorrow, we'll hear from Dr. Anthony Fauci about what was happening inside the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Big thanks for listening and to the team behind this series. This episode was produced by Naomi Shaven, Tim Shovers, Amy Padula, Alice Wilder, and Alex Sugiora. Research and fact-checking by Oriana Gonzalez. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Have a great national Johnny Appleseed Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.